Hey, hey. Hi. Hello. I'm feeling a bit bilious, actually, but hopefully that'll pass as we go. Or you can channel it. Yes. Via your um, vitriol gland. <laughs> oh, if, if I start getting too angry, I don't know if I'll ever be able to stop. There's an anger spiral somewhere just waiting to happen. Ooh, sounds uncomfortable. Oh, it might be wind. I'm sitting here and I've got my hands, um, like, clasped together in front of me. Um, and it just occurred to me that for all our talk of vitriol and and anger, and, you know, I try to think of myself as quite a cool young buck, I actually resemble little more than Ronnie Corbett in a T-shirt. <laughs> and I can't do an impersonation. Something with pushing the glasses and talking about the producer. Yes. Yeah, I can't yeah. do a Ronnie Corbett either. No, no, I can't even. No, <laughs> no, it just, it's just coming it. out all wrong. Yeah. Um, well, there isn't there isn't any famous impersonators really at the moment. No, you would have had Rory Bremner. You would have had probably Mike Yarwood, probably Phil Cool, maybe yeah. maybe Bobby Davro right at the beginning of his career doing um, a Ronnie Corbett, and whoever did him for uh, Spitting Image as well. Yeah, and and now. There's no one. And it's only through, like, people who do impressions that you would ever do an impression. It's not like, oh, well, unless it's someone with a very distinct voice like um, Justin Lee Collins. Yeah, he's a very distinctive character. Otherwise, you're not going to hear somebody on the TV and go, I'm going to do their voice. But once you've heard an impersonator do it, you'll do an impression of the impersonator doing an impression of the person. And get a close approximation, a close enough approximation of who it is you're trying to do. You're absolutely right. That's like Michael Caine and Sean Connery, isn't it? Everyone can do an impersonation of someone doing an impersonation of them, but n- nobody really sounds much like them. Yeah. We do have two really good impersonators out there, but they are both doing character acting now, aren't they? Uh, Steve Coogan and Rob Brydon. Oh, yeah. They're both very good, but they don't really do impersonations except when they're pretending to be... Each other. Each other, Yeah. <laughs> Which is a li- which is all a bit confusing. I think Rob Brydon occasionally um, channels Tom Jones without even like meaning to, but that might just be being Welsh. I don't know. Maybe all Welsh people channel a bit of Tom Jones. He's he's inside all of them. Yeah, there might be um, something in the milk. Yeah, essence of Tom Jones. Yeah, in the milk. Mm, milky Tom Jones goodness. <laughs> it. Um... Glides down all Welsh throats. Yeah. Watch new pussycat. Yeah, I can't do it. <laughs> you need to really boom it out. Well, yeah, I'm just really, I'm really self-conscious, obviously. I'm clearly a very self-conscious man. Have you ever done karaoke? Um, no, you know what I want to do? I want someone to open up uh, one of those karaoke bars like you see in um, film set in Japan. The ones that have booths that you can book out. Because I could see me in a little room with some close friends doing it, but I'm, there's no way I'm going up in one of the inner city pubs in Southampton with all the local chances going up there, trying to do a song in front of that incredibly hostile audience. I don't think I could handle it. Yeah, there's a time and a place to break out Viva Forever, isn't there? Yeah. I don't know what Viva Forever is. Spice Girls. Oh, yeah, no, I... I don't. I'm, I maybe... Actually, I say that. Let's Google and see if I'm correct. <laughs> oh, no, it is Spice Girls. Oh, thank goodness. 
there's probably a sweet spot when you're about five or six when every thought you have is original and makes some sort of sense. <laughs> but, but after that, you're just a slave to weird sign. Oh, I don't. I'm just gibbering. I think I might have been maybe 10 or hmm, 11 years old when I thought I was the guy who came up with that's not a skirt, that's a belt. <laughs> really? Yeah. One incredibly prudish 10-year-old. <laughs> Oh, mum, you're not going out dressed like that. <laughs> oh, she wouldn't listen. <laughs> that's just... That's so funny. <laughs> oh, that's such a dad thing to say. Oh, my goodness. I guess this all explains where my um, my dad jokes, my range of dad jokes come from. Your, uh, your penchant for pun charm... You know, I I have almost no instinct for puns. I, I when I watch other people on places like Twitter and something does the rounds, and you're there and you're saying funny things, and and our, our other friends online are there and they're all saying funny things, and I'm just sitting there going, I, I'm going to be really out of my depth until someone <laughs> says something where I can make some comment about wanking. That I'm on soft ground. Then I can't do clever jokes. It's terrible. You see. I I feel like in those times that, oh, wow, I've got a future making puns. <laughs> if, if, only, um, if only I could turn this into some sort of career. The problem is, if you do, you become a stand-up like Tim Vine. The problem for me is that I sort of need to be on a social network and have someone else start it. Can't really make a career out of that. Yeah, yeah, no, I understand that. Unless I start slinging puns. And at the same time, I don't know, I'm, I'm advertising something that's 30% off at Argos. <laughs> You've got to work out some way to monetize this skill. It's, there has to be, this has to be a marketable skill. My ability to make wank jokes out of pretty much any... I can spin jism jokes out of thin air. <laughs> oh, I'm so pleased you finished that sentence. There has to be some way I can monetize this. What is it? Oh, my goodness. Uh, yeah, product endorsement. That is the only way ahead. Or maybe at some point, someone out there and you will... Could, you, could, you could endorse them by going, I jizz on it. <laughs> at some point, somewhere out there, um, there's going to be some guy from Channel 4 or, or BBC 4 or whatever mm. uh, on Twitter desperately looking for some new fresh face to to write a sitcom and they're going to see your pun jokes on my my oversharing and they're going to be like that's the person i need them to come and write a script that's the dream anyway isn't it steve so it would be a sitcom <laughs> oh that's the perfect combination of both of our senses of humor oh forever alone <laughs> Unanswered. Yeah, I feel pretty good now. Excellent. I've had, I've had a nap. I'm ready to talk some stuff, Steve. Um, so, opinions. We, uh, we all have them. We all have them, <laughs> yes, as, as the quote goes. <laughs> That's very cheap and unpleasant, and we shouldn't lower ourselves to mentioning it here. That's the uh, Oscar Wilde quote. I think I it, I think it is, to. yeah. If there's one thing worse than... Having an arsehole, it's not having an arsehole. 
Yes. Yeah. I, I think that's that's how World put it. It was, yes. We could be really, really broad on this. And uh-huh. probably when we get off the starting blocks, as it were, with this conversation, we might have to be quite broad. Mm-hmm. What I'm interested in is the phrase that gets thrown around quite a lot, which is I'm entitled to my opinion, because I'm not entirely sure that's right. But before we get there, what is an opinion? What do you think? What's, What's your opinion? opinion? Oh, yeah. It's, it's interesting because an opinion it's just something you think, isn't it? It's not actually related to fact necessarily. I mean, it can be related to fact. Sure. But a lot of the time, one thing I've been thinking a lot about in terms of when people talk about films or TV or, or whatever recently is that half the time you form an opinion just based literally on the mood you're in when you're watching something or there are any number of different prejudices that feed into it and you kind of come up with the rationale for it afterwards. But we all we all assume, we all operate from the point that our opinion is considered and reasoned. But more often than not, it's just our instinct about something. Sometimes it's based on more than that uh, and afterwards we can often apply uh, apply reasoning to it and actually science i think is largely about having a crazy idea and then having the training to go out and try and prove or disprove it and i mean i think it's interesting because scientists obviously they like the rest of us they'll be reading stuff and watching stuff and taking information in they'll be basing their own thoughts on that stuff but whereas the rest of us sort of watched uh, lots of Magic Roundabout while stoned or read a lot of Stephen King, they, they were mostly reading scientific texts and stuff. So a lot of their opinions are really based on quite solid science, science fact, just because that's what, they, that's what they've been exposed to. Uh, the interesting thing about scientists, and I think this is something, this is maybe jumping the gun, because it's, it's uh, some pretty deep and heavy shit I'm going to lay on you now. But the interesting thing about scientists that I think is a point largely missed by a lot of the people who go on about how scientific rigour is the most important thing, is most of a proper, pure scientist, most of what they're trying to do is they have to be willing, on a daily basis, they have to be willing to try and prove themselves wrong in a way that the rest of us don't really try and do that. Most of us, we try and prove ourselves right all the time, and we kind of ignore most of the information. We've got a confirmation bias. We kind of ignore most of the information yeah. that doesn't fit our opinions. Whereas scientists, the proper ones, they're constantly trying to prove themselves wrong. <laughs> That's what they do, really. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah. their job is to give you a wealth of evidence to say this is how things are. And it mm. may well be that that evidence says that the thing that they were uh, investigating was not correct. Mm. For them, they're happy to be wrong because here's the evidence. Finally, we know something. Yeah, They put the work in, they have the evidence, they have their conclusion. It doesn't matter whether they were right or wrong. They wanted to investigate something and they found, they found out what they needed to find out. Whereas, as you were saying about confirmation bias, most people who adopt an opinion, adopt a viewpoint, have a judgment and believe it to be true and believe it to be right and just. And um, there's some people who carry an opinion and are happy to have that discussed and, and to even change their view. For most, they're, um, I guess they're almost little mantras or values or I'm struggling to find a term for it, but the, no, the, the, the opinions, they sort of, they, they, they carry with them and they guide them in their life and they guide them in the choices that they make, perhaps. 
For sure. And you've got a lot, I mean, people have a lot emotionally invested in, in that stuff, don't they? Because you're right, a, a lot of this stuff is stuff that you kind of live your life by. You choose, like, I don't know, ev- everything you do from how you run your relationships with people, um, in my case, chaotically, down to whether or not you leave the tap running while you're putting the toothpaste on your toothbrush before you run the toothbrush underneath the thing, which my wife thinks is really, it's really important you don't do that. Whereas I think it's really, uh, it really doesn't matter whether you do that very much. And neither of us is particularly interested in having her mind changed about that. And it could, it could shake the foundations of our own lives if, if someone proved it one way or the other. That's a bad example. A better one is, do you put milk in when you're making tea? Do you put the milk in before or after you put the water in? Ah, oh, what do you do? I I just I just think I I go with the flow. I think I do it differently every time. <laughs> but people feel really strongly about this stuff, don't they? I mean, it's just it's just really odd. I think most of the time I put the water in because I quite like seeing the water change from clear to having the tea colour in it. Yeah. But you see, there's also kind of a, a plus side to seeing the milk turn a bit brown. Okay, well, I think this is how it works. If you are serving the tea from a teapot, put the mm-hmm. milk in first. Yeah. If you are a commoner and you're just putting the tea bag straight into your mug, then it's yeah. probably better to put the milk in afterwards. But for me, but- I tend to always put it in afterwards because I judge the strength of my tea by the colour. And so it's easier to do that with the milk afterwards because I don't like having too much milk in my tea anyway. So I have it quite yeah, strong. I, I brew it for a while and then put a, just a drop of milk in. So I have it quite strong because I don't carry around like a tablespoon or a teaspoon or something to measure out the exact amount of milk. Um, it sounds like this might be one of those things where a lot of it's quite object, subjective. Subjective. Well, yeah. well, both. what was interesting is both of those points that you put forward, you could certainly say that there was an opinion involved, but the first one also involved habit and the second involved taste. Yeah. And perhaps a lot of opinions are influenced and affected by other aspects of our character or our being, habits and tastes being two perfectly good examples. You know, some some opinions kind of, as I'm thinking about it, I really want to be sure what is an opinion and, and not what isn't just something. For example, I like to have a thing positioned on my desk somewhere. Well, that's not really an opinion. That's a personal choice, I guess, a bit of OCD, perhaps. It's not a judgment. But you're still absolutely sure that it's right. It feels right, doesn't it? Sure, yeah. What does the dictionary say about opinions? There are a couple of words that I've been using that um, just come straight from the, the dictionary definition. A view or judgment formed about something not necessarily based on fact or knowledge. We said that in a lot more words between us, didn't we? We did. The dictionary says... So the dictionary is actually doing a pretty good job by pointing out it's not necessarily based on fact or knowledge. So people can have an opinion that can come from very little evidence or even none. Mm. And I suppose that can sort of be proved by Vox Pops, where you stick a microphone in someone's face and you ask them a question and it's clear that they don't know what you're talking about, but they're going to give you a view anyway because there's a camera in their face and they feel like it's important to say something. Yeah, I'd never really know how I'd react if someone did that to me. I'd probably panic and say <laughs> something really inappropriate. Just uh, do a little jig and then nervously walk away. 
Yeah, I I kind of feel a bit like a rabbit in the headlights uh, just when I'm called upon to use the phonetic alphabet on a phone or something like that, because I don't know the phonetic alphabet, but once you started, you kind of have to come up with something for each letter. That has nothing to do with Vox Pops at all. It's just it's, I, I got stuck with a word that only seemed to have letters in that were represented by rude words in my head the other day while talking to the doctor, and it, it caused me a lot of problems. Anyway, yes, people will, will come up with something because they kind of feel they're supposed to, won't they? As if it's almost worse for them to say, actually, I don't know. Yeah, sure. To just come clean and say, I don't really know uh, enough about this. Please tell me what you know or point me somewhere or, you know, that I can read about it or I'll just go off and find out about it myself. Instead, there's got to be a view instantaneously because otherwise it would be, I don't know, like you're stupid or you're weak or something, you know? You're exposed. Yeah, you're exposed, absolutely. It would just be way more honest to go, I don't know. It's interesting because that's something that, like... I think gets blamed on social media a lot, but it it's something that was already happening in our society a long time before people were really using the internet in any sort of serious way. It seems beyond anyone at this point in time to say, you know, to be honest, I've never really watched X Factor. Uh, I, I don't think I'd enjoy it, so I'm just not going to bother. Mm-hmm. But every, everyone kind of has to, you feel compelled to care about it one way or the other. I don't. Well, no, I mean, you don't, because <laughs> you are you are an evolved being in that sense. And, I mean, I get pretty angry about things. I generally get pretty angry about things I care about. I have strong opinions about things I care about one way or the other. And some of those things are things I shouldn't really care about. But you do see people expending an awful lot of energy on expressing opinions about things when those opinions are, that this just isn't worth bothering about. It seems... Strange, but I don't think it's something that started because of social media. I think it's just something that got worse because of social media because now everybody believes they are entitled to that 140 characters in someone else's timeline on Twitter or something. For as long as there's ever been um, the ability to have your comments published, there will be people who would only ever leave a comment if it was on topic and they felt like they could contribute to a discussion. And then there are mm. others who just need to be seen to be there. I'm sure there's probably something before this, but in in my mind, I guess one of the earliest is the uh, letters to the editor in newspapers. Mm. And then you've got phone-in participation for TV shows, uh, radio shows. So, you know, your talk radio format, open lines, anyone can phone in and give their view. I don't know how much time you've ever spent listening to um, to talk radio and, and call-in shows, but you do certainly have a mix of people who phone in because they want to contribute to a debate and others who phone in because they've got nothing else better to do with their time. Or they're outraged, you know, oh, I, yeah. it's this guy said something and I'm really outraged and I must say that I'm outraged, you know, because they're allowed. Yeah, yeah. And we start kind of going into another com- conversation about outrage, which might be mm. good for another show. But just that belief that um, because there is a way to be published that they too can participate in that, uh, you know, without even thinking about whether what they have is valuable or not. Sure. I wonder if part of that isn't, and obviously a historian would be more qualified to uh, to talk about this, but there's a, I guess you'd call it a democratization of media. So when the printing presses came in and then radio came in and suddenly anybody could afford, and, you know, cheap radio came in, so any 
family of any class could maybe afford to buy a, a newspaper or get a radio, suddenly that sort of conversation wasn't... It wasn't like all the working-class people all worked in the same places and they went and had conversations in pubs about whatever they were talking about. Um, I wouldn't begin to know what working-class people talk about. And then the middle classes and the upper class all had their conversations and, and generally they kind of knew knew what the rules were there and, and, and whether they were entitled to speak up in particular settings and stuff like that. When printed media became something that was available to, you know, when newspapers became something that was suddenly available to pretty much anyone, and also, you said, with radio, with call-in shows and stuff like that, these are all things like the phone and the radio work in tandem there. They're both relatively cheap technologies yeah. that anybody could have. Suddenly, anybody could speak up, and you end up with this weird discord. You end up with this peculiar discord between people not really having something to say. And you see, I've done that. I didn't really know what I was going to say then. And I started <laughs> talking anyway, because I felt like I felt like I had something that was worth contributing. And then I got confused. But I think there's there's something in there. You, you yeah. certainly didn't used to get that situation where everyone felt they had to have an opinion on, you know, you, you probably used to have a situation where people knew whether they were a Labour voter or a Tory voter or something. And even, you know, even in the working classes, People would have an opinion about that. They'd like be ferociously attached to a union or something, and sure. the argument, and they'd have opinions about the bits that impacted on them. But largely, people wouldn't hear about policies that were that were relating to over stuff that was going on overseas or whatever. So they wouldn't really have a, an informed opinion about it. And we're kind of still in the wake of suddenly everybody being able to get at that information, whether or not they're qualified to process it. I think we saw that with a lot of the stuff about the banks and the economy recently. Everyone has an opinion about it, but most people still don't really understand the economy. Yeah, sure. I mean, everyone everyone will have a view, hmm. and that could be very, very simple. Like, there need to be more jobs or more taxes or less taxes or more handouts, whatever. Um, and that'll be the thing that kickstarts the economy. But it's only a view, and hmm. that can be very, very qualified or it can be pretty unqualified. I feel like um, any opinion that I could put forward on the economy it, it would not be qualified at all. It might be informed, hmm. but it certainly wouldn't be qualified. And even then, I think probably some of the stuff that I would put forward as my own view has probably come from somewhere else. Sure. The best way of forming an opinion off the opinion of others, I would think, is to is, is to take a handful of them, weigh them up, and then mash them together and find out what's true to you. Yeah. In other cases, I'm not going to say one's more common than the other, but I mm. think in other cases people would parrot fashion an, an sure. opinion that echoes around between between person to person because it's easier to adopt something that they've heard somewhere else that makes a lot of sense than to form something themselves. Yeah, and uh, one thing I talk about a lot is that our brains are pattern recognition machines and that enables us to do an awful lot of things as humans. We can draw connections between things but unfortunately, it also sometimes means we'll draw connections because it comforts us between different things. And that isn't necessarily the way the world works. So we'll hear something that makes sense to us about the economy. Uh, like in my case, everyone being able to have a mortgage for all that time, it seems obvious to me that you can't just keep lending money to people and just expect that money to keep coming out of nowhere. So I've decided that's why the economy failed. But, you know, there are millions of different working moving parts to to 
to why things went the way they did with the economy. Mm. Well, whether the details are correct or not, I think what you're getting at there is right in, in that mm. when, with something as large and unwieldy as an economy, with all sorts of um, cogs and springs kicking off at the same time, a lot of tensions from all different aspects that are building up at the same time, that one moment that you can point to and say, that's when it started. You know, there was a run on Northern Rock. That's when it started. Mm. All of a sudden becomes a lot easier for people to, to understand. But try and explain to them that, you know, the, the economic problems that you're suffering now were actually caused 25 years ago through, you know, uh, A, B and C choices to do with regulation. And, and it's, it's harder to see the cause and effect, I guess, because it's, just, mm. it's a generation. How can someone make, make a bad mistake 25 years ago and it not come to fruition until now? That yeah. doesn't make sense. The, the cause and effect should be much closer together. But it kickstarts a whole bunch of tensions that were already there. So, so um, an opinion absolutely can do the same thing. It can conveniently ignore a much larger issue because this is the one piece that speaks the most truth to the individual who carries that opinion. And the word that I was struggling to say earlier that would have summed up a lot of what I was saying was, of course, the phrase received opinion. And instead, I decided to use a whole bunch of other words to do it. For the last 10 years, up until last year, I was fairly convinced... Well, no, I wasn't fairly convinced. I believed as fact that a famous British TV and radio personality was a paedophile based on what I found out last year was just a, a total hoax document that went got put out on the internet. Some guys put together this fake transcript of the show, Have I Got News For You? It seemed to suggest that this guy was a paedophile and because I was so completely taken in by this hoax and didn't bother doing any of the background reading, because, you know, it looked kind of right to me, it had the right voice to it, it had some veracity to it, I just became convinced that this uh, this celebrity was guilty. That became my reality. I, I believed that wholeheartedly. It was just an opinion, but um, I believed it wholeheartedly. And then about a year ago, I was trying to read up on it because... I talked to a few people and none of them seemed to know what I was talking about. So I did some reading up and found out that it was actually a hoax. And then I had to kind of apologise to my memory of the man and realise that I just kind of believed he was a paedophile because he was a bit creepy. And then in the last few weeks, it's turned out that he actually probably was a paedophile. And now I'm just very confused. I, d I don't really know what to think. And I, I mean, there's there's an indication there that my instincts were always correct and I should trust them. <laughs> Which I think is the real lesson I should be learning from from that. Sometimes, even if it's not true, there's a, a deeper truth. I'm not sure if that's a particularly helpful example, but it was very confusing because I really did believe that for a really long time, and then I spent a year just thinking, well, that's just, I was an idiot for all that time. That was crazy ass. And I mean, the truth is, I was an idiot for all that time. I hadn't checked against more than one source. Yeah. I'd read this thing and thought, yeah, that sounds right. I am happy to pass that on to other people. What do I care? The guy's dead anyway. <laughs> At least in, in that particular case, you reacted correctly at each turn. It wasn't like the transcript turned out to be a hoax and you got very defensive and you believed it to be true. No, that's true. Nor did you when it later turned out that actually this TV personality was particularly unpleasant. That you then didn't turn around and go, yes, vindicated, I was right all along. You reacted to it in the right way. I think some people who carry opinions will defend them to the hilt when mm. it's clearly, you know, the, the evidence outweighs the value of their opinion. Uh, and they will defend it and they will get very angry and, and 
I guess, on the other side of that, when someone has an opinion and then fact turns up to prove them right, that all of a sudden it was like they were the ones who discovered the evidence. They were the ones who brought the truth. It is confusing, though, because I was wrong for all that time. And then I knew I was wrong. And then it turned out I'd been right all along. So I was kind of in a in a state of being both wrong and right <laughs> for a, a really long time, like um, like a cat in a box. I think the the greater lesson that you learn from that is probably not that you should try and find more than one source for any particular information, but that your gut instinct was right after all. That's, I mean, that's what I'm going to take forward, obviously, is is I'm going to 100% believe everything my gut tells me. I think you're right. I don't know why we weren't naming the celebrity there, but once we got started, it seemed appropriate to continue it. It did. Let's not give them the oxygen of publicity. (laughs) Because oxygen is something they clearly need. <laughs> this is an awkward one to go through, isn't it? It's, it's weird. I didn't think it would be. But um, to try and talk about opinions as a broad thing without finding specific use cases of opinions to talk about. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. And also talking about opinions in itself is quite a big subject. What is an opinion? What does it mean to a person? And how does that tie into to an individual? And how does that tie into this whole thing about entitlement? The thing about that phrase, the about whether or not someone, you know, I'm entitled to my opinion, it's kind of a low-level Godwin's law for pretty much any sort of a conversation because it makes you feel enabled to put forward an opinion, but it's also a quite good way to shut down a conversation when you don't feel it's going your way, which a lot of people use it as. So for the record, explain Godwin's law. Godwin's law... And I'm guessing it's named after uh, the person who first identified it, which was uh, Davy Godwin, who <laughs> was a member of the Monkees who was shunted out before they got their TV programme, and it's a very sad story, is when you... I believe it's when you invoke uh, Hitler or or generally anything the uh, World War Two Nazis did. Not the more modern Nazis. They're a bit more confusing and don't really have as much of a sense of purpose. Yeah, I believe that's what Godwin's law is. It's when basically you're in an argument and you compare the other person's argument to something that Hitler might have come up with. I'll give you a quote to back that up. Care of Wikipedia. Oh, excellent. All, all these all these absolutely provable facts are there mm-hmm. ready for you at any time at your disposal. It's great. Mm-hmm. I feel sorry for N. Carter. So the quote is, as an online discussion grows longer, the probability of a comparison involving Nazis or Hitler approaches one. That's a very arch way of putting it. You could have just said, the longer you bang on about something, someone's just going to go, oh, that's what Hitler would have done. Or, oh, you're such a Nazi. Whereas I I think my understanding of it is more about the intended, uh, subconsciously intended impact of bringing it up. Nobody brings up Hitler when they're really interested in continuing the conversation. You know, you don't accuse someone of taking a viewpoint that is vaguely similar to Hitler when you want them to think you are still respecting their opinion, do you? That's exactly the sort of thing that Hitler would have done, which is good because we all want trains that run on time. Yeah. So well done there, (laughs) Davy Godwin. So what made you bring that up? He's on my mind because there was a a blog post recently that I know we've both read in which somebody, I believe a philosophy teacher, put forward a a very solid argument for why 
that not everybody is entitled to an audience for their opinion really is what he was saying but the headline to the post was no not everybody is entitled to their opinion and a lot of other people i've seen people react to that post and to similar notions with a very blunt yeah people aren't entitled to their opinion if it's a crazy opinion and it feels to me like it always comes down to this uh, friction between what we think of as reason and what we think of as blind faith specifically it, it, it seems to be one of those things you say well if you can't prove something scientifically then you might as well be talking about god it becomes about religion blind belief and um, you aren't entitled to blind belief you have to prove everything and the problem for me or like a less fascist version of godwin's law Yes, but the thing that always the thing that I always have a problem with when I think about this, after all the lovely stuff I was saying about my understanding of science earlier on, and again, I, it's really something that people need to look into because I'm no expert on this. But the story of Alan Turing, and and not just him, any number of different situations where somebody has come out of left field with scientific ideas that don't fit with the rest of the science community's perceived established understanding of things. The story of Alan Turing kind of proves that the science isn't just this hallowed notion that you can just hold up and just saying, oh, it's science, it's scientifically proven, etc., etc., suddenly means it's it's rational and and can be held against religion as as being some sort of gold standard. I'm kind of I'm kind of faffing about it, but the story of Alan Turing is really sad because, as I understand it, although he was an incredibly exceptional scientist, he was very involved in code breaking and stuff. His life ended in tragedy with him being exposed as gay and being put in prison and then ultimately taking his own life. The very strong impression I got, and again, this is just literally something that I've got from watching a documentary that had a very heavy slant towards this opinion, but a little background reading, not very deep reading, has borne out. What actually seemed to happen to him was at the time that he was exposed as being gay, he was also trying to put forward ideas that conflicted with what the rest of the scientific community was already invested in. Although it's unclear whether he was actually dropped in it by the scientific community, certainly they could have supported him at the time, but instead he was kind of treated like a problem that they were quite happy if he went away. I think it wasn't until many years later that it became clear that, to, to the extent that anyone can ever be right, in the world of science, um, his ideas were actually quite forward-thinking, and it turns out he he probably had a better grasp of the ideas in his field than the scientific community at the time did. So this idea that somehow science isn't touched by the same flaws that anything else we humans get our hands on it is kind of a flawed one to me, and so it, it leads me to it leads me to think we shouldn't just assume that if someone can scientifically prove something, they are entitled to their opinion and no one else is. And I think for, for me, I was starting to think in this particular argument, Turing is like Godwin in that he, he kind of should be, become a bit like Godwin's law in that there is a point in any argument where you could probably say, well, but sometimes the scientific community believes something without any real basis, in fact, and they're willing to send people to prison over it, if you see what I mean certainty is one of those things we tend to gravitate towards because we are an insecure species and it gives us some sort of comfort mm. and that's true of religious people and it's true of scientists and 
and again, I'm separating them into two groups, but it's absolutely not true that they're two different groups. <laughs> there are loads of scientists who are religious. Yeah. This is the wonderful paradox about having a show where we give our opinions about opinions. We're, we're, you know, we're yeah. always going to spiral back on ourselves and eat our own tail. Yeah, oh yeah, it's brilliant. Dan Harmon, in one of his podcasts, the ex-showrunner of Community, does a podcast. And one thing that he said that I thought was really interesting recently is, and I am paraphrasing because he is possibly just a tad more concise than I am, which means it's quite difficult to paraphrase him, especially if you you are me. One of the things he said was that both religion and the, it's not really scientific community, the atheist movement, he wants nothing to do with either of them. Because as far as he's concerned, religion and science are both innately part of the human experience. Um, And this is uh, something that I'm saying now. It's the idea of imagination and the ability to believe in something you've imagined and also the ability to um, investigate and be inquisitive. Those are two innately human things. They separate us from animals, basically. I'm not saying animals don't have, you know, can't work out how to do things that are very clever and stuff but our ability to come up with stories and then invest ourselves in them that's at, that's at the core of most of how we pull ourselves out of the mud do you know what I mean? it's how we got to the stars believing that it was worth getting out there yeah was was one of the reasons we got out there again at the same time we wouldn't have been able to do that if we weren't also able to investigate things and come up with working hypotheses and and whittle ideas down to a point. Now, arguably, what you see in in both organised religion and the kind of organised movement against religion that you see quite a lot is the worst of that because because it's taking these things, you know, our ability to believe in something and our ability to question something, these are brilliantly human things, but then it's locking them down. It's freezing them into a position that is largely only really beneficial to the people who are doing the locking down. The um, always present old white men at the tops of these organisations who have a vested interest in us being locked into locked into these modes of thinking. And as, as Dan Harmon puts it, uh, probably a lot better than me, he says, these are two quintessentially human things. Fuck you for trying to make me decide between the two of them. I choose to be fine with both of them. It's, yeah. it's fine. It, it isn't something innate to religion that makes people believe they can impose their beliefs or their opinions on other people. And that's, I think, where we start to come back to entitlement, this entitled to your opinion thing yeah. that, that I think is quite interesting because I almost think that it's interesting that people always say, well, I'm entitled to their opinion because, as I think you've already rightly said, what you're really talking about then is you're talking about whether or not you're entitled to voice your opinion or to have an audience for your opinion, which are yeah. two entirely different things as well. You're entitled to, to say what you want. Nobody can really stop you saying what you want. Anyone who says there are people on every corner trying to stop you saying what you want, a kind of fantasist, really. There are fringe situations where people get into trouble for, like, talking about bombs when they're in the queue to get onto a plane or, or you know, if they talk about it on Twitter beforehand. I think a slightly sharper reading of that would be you are free to think what you want. Yeah. In, in, in that way, you do have an entitlement to your own opinion because mm. you own your own mind. And so you can use it to form whatever view you like, but there better be a part of you that's prepared to back it up. And that's where the voicing of it comes into play, doesn't it? And you don't 
automatically deserve an audience for being able to think of something. Well, definitely. I mean, I'd go one stage further and say that the idea of being entitled to it is crazy. You're going to have opinions whether you want to or not. (laughs) (laughs) And nothing's going to stop you. You you have a functioning brain and you try and make sense of the world around you. We go back to, um, to the thing that we didn't, we didn't want to say at the beginning, but actually I think is, is pretty, a pretty pure reading of the whole thing, which is, it's true. Opinions like assholes are one of the few things you've got, whether you want it or not. You just, you, you don't, it's not about being like whether you're entitled to it or not. You're going to have it. And actually this is where I sometimes get a bit snarled up with people when talking about race or talking about other sorts of prejudices. The truth is sometimes people can't even help certain prejudices. It's not about, it's not about whether or not black people make you uncomfortable or you don't really understand how girls can kiss other girls or, or whatever or any of that stuff. It's about whether or not you think that how you feel about it is something that you're entitled to impose on other people. You can think what you want. And really, uh, like I said, I don't think you've really got any choice a lot of the time in how you think um, or in certainly in how you feel. Um, a lot of the things that make you uncomfortable are things that got set when you were very, very young. And it's very difficult to break through those. It's how you choose to act out about those things. I think, I mean, certainly for me, when talking to people, the, the people I like being around most, it doesn't really matter what they believe. One of the things I like is talking to people who don't believe the same things I do. But the ability to be open to listening to other opinions is something that I really value myself. Yeah. Mainly because I quite like a good argument anyway. So it's sort of, it's not necessarily, not an argument, but a, a vigorous exchange of ideas. I do quite sure. like that. Yeah. Although I think people who've, who've talked to me in the past might disagree. It's not that important to me that everybody sees things the same way I do because most of the time I'm not sure that I'm right about the way I see things. You know, I'm, I'm a quintessential agnostic. I'm not even sure if quintessential was the right word to use there, but I'm like pretty much through and through agnostic about most things now, not just God and religion. I I mean, literally about almost everything. I'm not sure I'm on the fence about whether or not we should be going to work. I'm on the fence about whether we should have government (laughs) You're looking for more sources. As long as nobody ever asks me to present them, because I'm not, I'm not that rigorous. So in your case, then, none of your opinions or very few of your opinions are locked. Yeah, I think there are things I get quite passionate about, but if forced to examine them, which does happen sometimes, often, actually. <laughs> Literally, sometimes it turns out that the thing you believed in was a hoax. <laughs> You've kind of got to change your mind. I, still, I mean, I still, obviously, I have prejudices and there are things and people that massively irritate me. But the thing is, I'm quite conscious of how irrational that is a lot of the time. I think that one thing that people should think about a lot when they're carrying around their opinions and their feelings and pretty much when they're communicating with other people is how innately ridiculous we all are. We all wander around trying to convince ourselves that we kind of get how the world around us works But really, we're incredibly, all of us have an incredibly narrow uh, field of experience. Yeah. It seems to make sense to me to assume that I am ridiculous and all of the people around me are ridiculous. And if we all just understood that, then maybe um, we could have different opinions, but we wouldn't actually have to kill each other over them. (laughs) Try not to kill people. I don't know, maybe I should start a religion. (laughs) What would you call it? 
It, it sounds, the more I think about it, like I'd call it Christianity. But with a K. Yeah, with a K, because yeah. it's cooler. If yeah. I was going to come up with, I mean, I, I don't, I'm Z. not that. Grizzdianity. Grizz, yeah. I, I'm not, because that's cool, actually. Yeah, I'm in. <laughs> I'm not that sympathetic to the stories that Christianity has, and there's loads of bad things. I'm probably more emotionally in line with Buddhism from the little bit I understand of that, which I've mostly picked up from podcasts yeah. that aren't about Buddhism. But... The Ten Commandments that I can always remember, they're not bad ones. They're pretty much what I'd be coming up with if I was trying to get disparate people to live in a big space together. Thou shalt not immediately dismiss someone else's point on Twitter. Thou shalt not troll. Thou shalt not kill. And stuff like that. Those are all pretty good. Bros before hoes. That's another one that I Uh believe is in the Bible. I really need to do more research before I try and put any of this on paper. Well, indeed, or chiselling it into anything permanent. And leaving it on a pretty <laughs> steep hill. A, a very big mound. Yeah. Uh, if I was going to leave my commandments on a hill, I'd pick the one in Cern Abbas that has a giant white outline of a man with his penis out. I'd probably put it on the tip of the penis because people would notice it more quickly, wouldn't they? I guess they would notice it more quickly. And at the same time, you could sort of take a comfortable seat on an opposing mound and watch people be a bit uncomfortable about approaching (laughs) a large cock, even a rudimentary picture of one. This religion is entirely based on, it's entirely based around the opinions of a giant cock. (laughs) (laughs) That that cock being me. It, it, It turns out you can start a religion in the contemporary world we're in. You can start a religion and it can come to fruition remarkably quickly, so... I wonder what you're talking about. Nothing nothing that I'm going to say out loud. No. You would be cruising for a bruising. Um, my my thetans are feeling a little bit low, though, it has to be said. Yeah, that's, um, that's expensive to fix, that. <laughs> <sighs> it's going to be pricey. <laughs> scared oh, you know there's got to be a few breaks in there it's going to be a couple of days to sort that out it's going to cost you <laughs> going to have to send out for some Chinese <laughs> <laughs> I think the interesting thing about all this especially I mean going from the post that I recently read is people say really intelligent things about discussion and discourse and in this particular case we're talking about whether or not there needs to be balance in the media whether or not groups can claim they are being prejudiced against. The the particular right. case, I think, was about an argument over immunisation, which is another one of those fields like abortion and because it's because it's related to health, it's a particular place where science and science and opinion kind of impact with each other quite badly. There was this idea that within media discussion of this huge issue, which is the immunisation of children, whether or not these fringe immunisation groups that are totally anti-immunisation but can't really offer any any scientific proof or research or anything that backs them up should be given an equal voice to actual scientific bodies, especially because the media can tip people's opinions and immunisation is one of those fields where it actually can affect people's... Like, it's a life-or-death thing. We've got, what, 12, 15 years of evidence there, of there being incredible traction gained on the MMR vaccine causing autism, and a lot of people adopting a viewpoint that is a dangerous vaccine and their child shouldn't have it. 
based on hearing someone else say it, whether it's uh, something they've seen in the newspaper or whether they saw Jenny McCarthy talking about it on the television. And it doesn't matter if it's actually true, it's being delivered to them in a way that sounds true and that's enough. Exactly. And I, I mean, I'd always suggest that people not take the opinion of Jenny McCarthy seriously when it's about health. And this argument seems to be about whether or not people are entitled, whether unqualified people are entitled to have their opinion heard in the media, in media stories that are covering this. This idea of a balanced media is quite prevalent and quite important in all of this. The uh, particular person that we both read makes a very strong case. There shouldn't be any expectation of a voice in those situations. And really, I mean, I kind of agree with that, that really the media doesn't have to give you a balanced view. It's good practice in journalism if you look at more than more than a couple of sources, but there's no law in place that says you have to get to get, have a voice just because you're shouting loudest. Yeah. The strength must be in delivering the facts, and that must always be uh, your prime directive. The background to that may well be opposing views. That's fine. And it may well be, in an article, a lot of it is written about why you should have a particular vaccination if we, if we carry on going down this road. And then there hmm. might be a one or two line quote from a pressure group. Now, that pressure group may well read that article and have something to complain about because they clearly haven't had an equal amount of column inches. But the, the reporter or the editor or whoever's in charge of that story has curated that story so it's delivering facts to you. There may well have been more from the quote from the pressure group, but a lot of it was conjecture or opinion or things that didn't really contextually fit. Someone's curated the story so it delivers the most factual truth to you. Instead of having this weird kind of circus of everybody having an equal amount of time to say whatever it is they feel, which would actually muddy and confuse the issue, it wouldn't deliver you such a clear line. Some of this must come back to the fact that it is now easier for people to be able to publish, that there is this, this opinion that now everybody must have an equal share of airtime, oh, attention, whatever. But yeah, so you, you get a post like that and then what, what happens is people see it as validation of their personal opinion, which is the best one a friend of mine said was, yes, you should, certainly shouldn't be entitled to your opinion, especially if that opinion is bonkers. Well, A, that's not really what the guy was getting at. He wasn't just talking generally about how people aren't entitled to crazy opinions. But the thing that I thought is, well, let's say that's fine. Let's say that people shouldn't be entitled to their opinion if they're, you know, crazy opinions. How are we going to police that? I'm not qualified. Certainly, I don't think the person saying it was qualified to... I don't think he had psychiatric training or anything. I don't know if he's qualified to say whether something's bonkers. I'm certainly not. Once you start asking for people to be qualified before they open their mouths in anything, how much work are you going to put into it? When you ask someone what they want for breakfast and then they tell you that they want breakfast cereal, like a Weetabix or something... Are they going to have to offer proof for why they, you know, some sort of scientific thinking behind why they want Weetabix? Are they going to have to offer a thesis they wrote at university about why it's better than bran flakes? It seems like a lot of work and I don't have time to do it. I'm already underachieving in so many different areas. I can't be responsible for making sure that, that people are qualified to have the opinions they're voicing. Do you know anyone who, I mean, anyone we'd know who has enough spare time to do something like that? 
they've probably got the spare time because they're not the sort of person we'd want to be deciding which opinions were worthwhile and which ones weren't. Who gets to decide which opinions are worthwhile and which ones aren't? Everybody. There's no uh, message board moderator for um, real-world discussion. We all have to be the moderators, everybody. The first and ideal step would be to self-moderate, to be aware of what you are saying as the words are coming out, or even better, what you're thinking before it reaches the mouth. So if you have an opinion, you take into account the context in which you're going to air it and voice it as tactfully as you can. That's not necessarily meaning to dress your words up so nobody gets hurt or offended, but just that you sort of read the room and, and you know how best to express that view in, in a way that doesn't, even if it's a crazy opinion, then it doesn't sound crazy. And that you should at least be in an environment where other people can say to you that they disagree with you. Yeah. To dismiss another person's opinion as bonkers isn't actually helping the debate. Well, no, not at all. Because in order for you to say that that's bonkers, you've clearly been offended and you're reacting by offending. And so no one's any the wiser because you've just encouraged the other person who delivered their opinion to now be defensive about it. No one's learned a thing. You're closing down lines of inquiry as well, aren't you? You're closing down conversation. Yeah. So don't police it yourself, Nick. That's probably a little bit too much for any one person to take on. And I understand you're juggling quite a lot as it is. So um, put that to one side. Okay, thanks. That's all right, yeah. <laughs> That's weight off my shoulders. Yeah. You can't even teach this to people. They kind of have to learn learn it themselves. But you just have to hope in every situation where opinions are being aired that people are sort of just being a little bit more respectful about the conversation, about the debate, if you like. And that way, you shouldn't even have somebody saying, I'm entitled to my opinion, or you've had your say, now I must have my say. That There isn't this sort of adversarial thing going on, or this um, uh, tallying up of time spent speaking, you know, so everybody gets an equal share. It's Because that doesn't, as we've already discussed, that doesn't actually get you anywhere closer to truth, or that doesn't get you anywhere closer to at least something interesting to talk about. Instead, it's all about territory. You've turned what might have been a a pleasant chat or something that's intellectually stimulating into a land grab of who can say the most stuff. That's not helping anybody. No, it's something I need to work on, actually, probably. And intellectually, I think we both understand all this, but it's something that's a constant battle. Well, keep fighting the good fight. I will. I think uh, uh, the point when someone says that, I think what you're saying is the point when someone feels the need to say the words, I am entitled to my opinion, we have all failed. Yeah. I feel a lot better. Yeah, I do as well. Yeah. And um, I'm very pleased that we've been able to have an avenue in which we can publish our opinions to which we are very much (laughs) entitled. Oh, yeah. Hell, yeah. With a high five. We're doing a good job. (laughs) (laughs) Funnily enough, I think that might be one of the trickier things we try and cover because it's such a greasy subject. Once you you start um, investigating it, Mm. um, all of a sudden on discussing opinions, you sort of need to know an awful lot of facts. (laughs) Well, yeah, if you want to discuss them properly. (laughs) Shit. I'm going to have to take a quick comfort break. 
Yep, that's fine. I, I'm about to die. That's fine. We we uh, need to wrap up. Sure, I understand. I will be back momentarily. This okay. shouldn't take long because the pressure is built up. <laughs> oh.